Now this, it, to me, is a thrilling subject, Calvin on worship. It's an important subject because worship is so pathetic in the United States today. And this, if we could, if the Lord would use Calvin again to, to purify worship in our churches, we'd be a long way down the road toward national revival. Nothing was more important to John Calvin than the pure worship of God in spirit and in truth. Several biblical texts played a role in Calvin's development of his doctrine of the worship of God. You shall have no other gods before me, God said. Calvin understood that concern of the first commandment was worship. He said in it, God enjoins that he alone should be worshiped and requires a worship free from all superstitions. God therefore calls for the affections of the heart that he alone may be spiritually worshipped. Thence we arrive at the distinction between true religion and false superstitions. For since God has prescribed to us how he would, ha would be worshipped by us, whenever we turn away in the smallest degree from this rule, we make to ourselves other gods and degrade him from his right place. Calvin has a lot to say about this text in Leviticus 10. Now Dadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silence. This text greatly impressed Calvin. He speaks of it as a memorable circumstance, from whence it appears how greatly God abominates all the sins whereby the purity of religion is corrupted. He said, now God had forbidden any other fire to be used in the ordinances in order to exclude all extraneous rites and to show his detestation of whatever might be derived from elsewhere. Let us learn, therefore, so to attend to God's command as not to corrupt his worship by any strange inventions. But if he so severely avenged this error, how horrible a, a punishment awaits the papists who are not ashamed obstinately to defend so many gross corruptions. And then he uses 2 Corinthians 6. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In his comments on this verse, Calvin makes the point that believers like Old Testament priests are set apart for the spiritual worship of God as a royal priesthood in the totality of our being, body and soul. Hence, as we are redeemed by the grace of God, he said, it is befitting that we keep ourselves undefiled in respect of all uncleanness that we may not pollute the sanctuary of God. Bottom of the page. Calvin's war against the idolatry of Rome was the logical consequence of his conversion. After being devoutly Roman Catholic, he, 
by a sudden act of conversion, God subdued his heart, his heart to teachableness, teachableness and to Protestantism. According to Calvin, his conversion was a turning away from what stood between him and God, his adherence to the superstition of popery. Like Pharaoh, his conversion focused on the rejection of Roman Catholic worship. This is a thoroughly biblical attitude. As 1 Thessalonians 1 says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to worship a living and true God. Public worship was of supreme and central importance to Calvin. It was far more important to him than it is to many professed Christians today. Now, this next paragraph is a killer. You're going to be surprised when you hear Calvin say how important pure congregational worship is. He said, if it be inquired then by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence among us and maintain its truth, it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts and consequently the whole substance of Christianity. A knowledge first of the mode in which God is duly worshipped, and secondly, of the source from which salvation is to be obtained. When these are kept out of view, though we may glory in the name of Christians, our profession is empty and vain. After these comes the sacraments and the governments of the church. Calvin says, you want to know what the four basic fundamentals of the Christian faith are? He said the first two are the most important. In fact, in these first two principles, you have comprehended the entirety of Christianity. And the first most important principle is how God is to be worshipped. And the second most important principle is how we're to be saved. That's interesting, isn't it? Normally we'd reverse them. But that's how important the whole subject of worship is to Calvin. And then he says the third and fourth principles are the sacraments and the government of the church. In this quote, we see the top priority worship was to Calvin. He placed how to worship God above how to be saved. His emphasis is that a knowledge of how God wants to be worshipped and the knowledge of how God saves sinners not only occupy the principal place in Christianity, they compromise, uh, they comprise the whole substance of Christianity. Following these two priorities, Calvin ranks the knowledge of the sacraments and the government of the church as third and fourth. For Calvin, the worship of God was of central and supreme importance because it was the meeting place, the special meeting place of God and his people. Calvin wrote, let us know and be fully persuaded that wherever the faithful who worship him purely and in due form, according to the appointment of his word, are assembled together to engage in the solemn acts of religious worship, God is graciously present and presides in the midst of them. According to Calvin, man's chief end is to know God and knowing him to glorify him in worship and obedience. This is the basis of Calvin's theology of worship and of his attack on idolatry in worship. The knowledge of God and the worship of God are inseparable. A person cannot know God without worshiping him. A person cannot be a Christian without a proper understanding of worship. 
And speaking of worship, Calvin says, there's nothing to which all men should pay more attention, nothing in which God wishes us to exhibit a more intense eagerness than in endeavoring that the glory of his name may remain undiminished, his kingdom be advanced, and the pure doctrine which alone can guide us to true worship flourish in full strength. Now turn over to page 267. I hate to skip over these, but we must. The nature of worship as spiritual worship. In John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him and worship him in spirit and truth. Because of verses like this, Calvin believed that the only correct form of worship approved by God was spiritual worship, which had two characteristics. First, worship devoid of trust in material props and humanly devised ceremonies, and in the Old Testament ceremonies that were fulfilled in Christ, and second, worship that has been commanded by God in the Bible. Calvin's interpretation of the second commandment involves fervently praying against our imagining that God can be expressed in any figure. The Roman Catholic Church breaks this commandment by its idolatrous innovations, but it tries to evade the label of idolatry by calling their idolatrous sculptures, paintings, frescoes, and rituals, quote, the books of the uneducated. Calvin's response to this ploy was as follows. I still cannot see what benefits such images can provide for the unlearned, except to make them into anthropomorphites, that is, people who humanize God. Indeed, brothels show harlots clad more virtuously and modestly than the Catholic churches shows these objects, which they wish to be seen as images of the virgins. But then we shall also answer that this is not the method of teaching the people of God, whom the Lord will to be, wills to be instructed with a far different doctrine than this trash. He has set forth the preaching of his word as a common doctrine for, uh, for all. From this one word they could have learned more than from a thousand crosses of either wood or stone. Therefore, he will vindicate his majesty and glory against any who may transfer it to graven images or other things. And not once, but against fathers, the children, and the grandchildren. There's another vitally important issue for Calvin because he said there's nothing more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous and perverse worship of God. Calvin said, the rule which distinguishes between pure and vitiated worship is of universal application. In order that we may not adopt any device which seems fit to ourselves, but look to the injunctions of him who alone is entitled to prescribe. Therefore, if we would have him to approve our worship, this rule, which he everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness, must be carefully observed. For there is a twofold reason why the Lord, in condemning and prohibiting all fictitious worship, requires us to give obedience only to his own voice. First, it tends greatly to establish his authority, that we do not follow our own pleasure and depend entirely on his sovereignty. And secondly, such is our folly, that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is to go astray. And then when once we have turned aside from the right path, there's no end to our wanderings until we get buried under a multitude of superstitions. 
Justly, therefore, does the Lord, in order to assert his full right of dominion, strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do. And at once reject all human devices, which are at variance with his command. Justly, too, does he, in express terms, define our limits that we may not, by fabricating perverse modes of worship, provoke his anger against us. The regulative principle of worship by which we determine what to include and include in the worship of God, says Calvin, is the biblical injunctions of him who alone is entitled to prescribe how he is to be worshipped. God enforces this rule, said Calvin, with utmost strictness. And God gives us two reasons why he, quote, requires us to give obedience to his own voice. First, it firmly establishes the truth that God is sovereign in our consciences, causing us to depend entirely on that sovereignty. And second, when left to our own imaginations and experience, all we're able to do is go astray. Therefore, the Lord asserts his dominion by strictly commanding us not only to do only what he commands in worship, but also to reject all rites and rituals of worship that originated in the brain of man. Therefore, we can summarize Calvin's regulative principle of worship in three simple statements. One, whatever God commands in his worship is required of us. Two, whatever God forbids in his worship is prohibited for us. And three, if God has not commanded a rite or a ritual for worship, it is forbidden. Because of the truth spelled out in Deuteronomy 12, 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Here's Calvin. Notice how strong this is. So let us hold to this tr- rule. That all human inventions which are set up to corrupt the simple purity of the word of God and to undo the worship which he demands and approves are true sacrileges in which the Christian man cannot participate without blaspheming God and trampling his honor underfoot. He said this, only when we follow what God has commanded us to do, we truly worship him. And render obedience to his word. 273. The six basic principles of worship flowing from Calvin's theology. First, the centrality of the word of God. 273. The word of God directs worship and is largely the content of worship. The word is read, preached, sung, prayed, confessed. And seen in communion. The worshiper meets God through the word. Godfrey says this. Criticism of Calvin's approach to worship. Often focuses on his stress upon the Bible. One such criticism is that Calvin is biblicistic. In his approach to worship. Such a criticism declares that there is no book of Leviticus in the New Testament. And so the church has great freedom in worship as it sees best. Calvin's response would be that the absence of a Levitical book in the New Testament reflects more the simplicity of the church's worship in Christ than creative freedom. For Calvin, the teaching of the New Testament is full and complete as a guide and warrant for the simple worship of the children of God in the Spirit. No more freedom is given in the New Testament to invent forms of worship than was given in the old. 
Calvin recognized, however, the circumstances surrounding the worship of God are not specified in the Bible. For instance, the time of worship on Sunday, the location of the worship service, the language used in worship. In such issues, the church has some discretionary authority, as the Westminster Confession of Faith informs us in chapter 1, paragraph 6. But the church has no discretionary authority in the worship of God though it does some, have some discretionary authority regarding the circumstances surrounding the worship service. The second principle in Calvin is the simplicity of worship. We are not dependent on the childish props of the Old Covenant. They were temporary shadows that have passed away now that Christ, the substance, has come. Calvin said this, the second paragraph, simplicity does not mean Actually, this is, this is not Calvin, this is Godfrey. Simplicity for Calvin did not mean the absence of liturgical structure. Like some worship services. You go into some worship services and you have no idea what's going to happen next. One time I was in Chipping Camden, England in the Cotswolds. And I was looking for some good old reformed church to go to. And closest thing I could find was a, a Baptist church that was established in 15 something or another. I didn't want to go to the Anglican church because of the liturgy and everything, but we went to this Baptist church who's been around since the 1500s thinking that that would be, it would be biblical and we'd walk in. The first thing they do is sing happy birthday to Jesus and it's downhill after that. <laughs> Simplicity did not mean the absence of liturgical structure. Calvin's service with its movement from confession to praise to preaching to intercession to communion shows that. Simplicity meant the removal of physical symbolism and ceremonies that were not instituted in the Bible. Simplicity is closely linked to spirituality. In the simplicity of the Spirit's power, Christ is present among His people in the preaching and sacrament. Nothing may be added to that divine arrangement. The following was the normal order of worship used by Calvin in Geneva and by Bootser in Strasbourg. First, you have the call to worship, usually Psalm 124.8. Then the confession of sins. Then prayer for pardon. Then they sang a psalm. They had a prayer for illumination and scripture reading and then a sermon. Then there was a collection of offerings. Then there were prayers of intercession and a long paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer. Then they sang the Apostles' Creed while the Lord's Supper was being prepared. Then the words of institution of the Lord's Supper then instruction and exhortation concerning the Lord's Supper, and then they served communion while a psalm was sung or some scripture read. Then they had a prayer of thanksgiving, and then it concluded with a benediction, usually number 6, 24 through 25. Calvin's influence, once again, can be seen on the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 7, uh, paragraph 5, the Westminster Fathers described the complex an ornate liturgy of temple worship with all its messianic types and figures. And in 7.6, they described the worship of the church in the new covenant with, it had greater simplicity, less ornateness, but more power. In other words, in this one covenant of grace, that is the under uh, unifying structure and theme of both testaments, there are two modes of administrating the blessings of that covenant. The Old Testament dispensation was highly complex and ornate in its messianic symbols expressed in rites and rituals. The New Testament dispensation of those same blessings is simpler than the Old Testament, 
but far more spiritually effective in transmitting them. The covenant of God is now held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. Hence, simplicity of worship has reference to the spirituality of worship. A mystical element pervades Calvin's understanding of the worship of God. According to him, when believers are worshiping God, they ascend into heaven. Worship draws the Christian into heaven in communion with the ascended Christ. This ascent in worship is mysterious even for Calvin, but a foundational current in his thought. This idea of ascent is part of the pattern of Christian experience flowing from Christ's saving work. Christ ascended in his incarnation to lift us to heaven. Here's Calvin's words. Now that the mosaic ceremonies are abolished, we worship at the footstool of God when we yield a reverential submission to his word and rise from the sacraments to a true spiritual service of him. Knowing that God has not descended from heaven directly or in his absolute character, but that his feet are withdrawn from us, being placed on a footstool, we should be careful to rise to him by the intermediate steps. Christ is he not only on whom the feet of God rest, but in whom the whole fullness of God's essence and glory resides. And in him, therefore, we should seek the Father. With this view, he descended that we might rise heavenward. Robert Godfrey's summary of Calvin is this. Christ continues to help us heavenward as his spirit descends to empower the word and sacraments of the church. Letter D, another basic element of worship for Calvin, the reverence of worship. Calvin said, Here indeed is pure and real religion, faith so joined with an earnest fear of God that this fear also embraces willing reverence and carries with it such legitimate worship as is prescribed in the law. And we ought to note this fact even more diligently. All men have a vague general veneration of God, but very few really reverence him. And wherever there is great ostentation in ceremonies, sincerity of heart is rare indeed. Today, people would criticize Calvin's concern for reverence in worship. They say that this encourages coldness of worship with little emotions and little joy. Calvin, of course, was not opposed to emotions, believing that the full range of human emotions would be expressed in worship just as they are expressed in the Psalms. However, this expression of emotion must be moderate and self-controlled, as Calvin wrote, for the principle which the Stoics assume that all the passions are perturbations and like diseases is false and has its origin in ignorance. For either to grieve or to fear, to rejoice or to hope is by no means repugnant to reason, nor does it interfere with tranquility and moderation of mind. It is only excess or intemperance which corrupts what would else be pure. And surely grief, anger, desire, hope, fear are affections of our unfallen nature implanted in us by God and such as we may not find fault with without insulting God himself. Godfrey also explains that part of the reverence of reformed worship is found in the role of the minister. He speaks for God to the people and for the people to God. Some criticize this practice as limiting the participation of the people in worship. Calvin's response would be twofold. First, such a criticism misses the importance of the ministry in Christ's church. 
He said, for neither the light and heat of the sun nor food and drink are so necessary to nourish and sustain the present life as the apostolic and pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth. Second, the ministers as they preach faithfully speak for God. He said, God proves our obedience by a very good test when we hear his ministers speaking just as if he himself spoke. Second, Calvin would argue that the congregation does participate actively in worship. They must listen actively in faith to the preaching of the word. They must join in the singing of God's praises. They must pray with the minister, lifting up their hearts and minds to God. Such activities are the reverent participation to which God calls his people. Congregational music played only a minuscule role in medieval worship. The Reformation restored congregational singing to its rightful place so that it has been said that Europe was psalm sung in the Reformation. Calvin gave music an important place in worship. He even wrote music, probably wrote, I greet thee whom I sure redeemer art. His view of music grows out of his theology. Calvin said, we find by experience that it has a sacred and almost incredible power to move hearts in one way or another. Therefore, we ought to be even more diligent in regulating it in such a way that it shall be useful to us and in no way pernicious. He says, and in truth, we know by experience that singing has great force and vigor to move and inflame the hearts of men to invoke and praise God with a more vehement and ardent zeal. Care must always be taken that the song be neither light nor frivolous, but that it have weight and majesty, as St. Augustine says. And also, there is a great difference between music, which one makes to entertain men at table and in their houses, and the psalms which are sung in the church in the presence of God and his angels. Although Calvin appreciated music and worship, he did not allow for musical instruments in public worship. We don't have time to go over this. Also, Calvin thought that the psalms were the best songs to be sung in public worship. And though many people claim him to be an exclusive psalm singer, that is, uh, allowing only the singing of psalms in the worship of God, as we saw in Calvin's order of worship, they often sang the Apostles' Creed in worship, which you can't find in the book of Psalms. Let's go to, pay, now, page 282 is what I've been hurrying to get to. Because from here on out, I may be talking about something you have never heard of before. And that is the Nicodemites. The Nicodemites. N-I-C-O-D-E-M-I-T-E-S. There's a great book that you can buy by Calvin called The Anti-Nicodemite Sermons of John Calvin. And this is one of the most neglected areas of Calvin's thought and activity. And it has great practical relevance for us. The Nicodemites were primarily Protestants in France who did not want to separate from the Roman Catholic Church but who wanted to reform it from within. Consequently, although they knew the worship and theology of the Roman Catholic Church were false and unbiblical, they continued to attend Mass and to go through the motions of the Mass, largely for their own safety's sake, while knowing that these outward actions were wrong. They were Calvinists in heart, but they still attended Roman Catholic worship and didn't believe a thing they were doing. 
They believed they could truly worship God in their hearts, even as they were participating in rites and rituals with their bodies they knew to be out of accord with the word of God. They took the name Nicodemites after a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night for fear of what the Jews might do to him if they found out his relationship to Jesus. However, Calvin did not appreciate them calling themselves Nicodemites because he said Nicodemus was never really the prototype of the religious dissembler, those who disguise their true feelings, ideas, and motives. When Nicodemus was still in ignorance, he went to Jesus by night, but later he openly displayed his faith as a, as a disciple at Jesus' burial. As a Christian, Nicodemus did not fear persecution. So Calvin took great offense at these people calling themselves uh, Nicodemites. More particular, well, let's go to the next page. Calvin did not give the Nicodemites the choice of compromise and pretense. Rather, he told them, although it was difficult to do so, because he knew that such choices would lead to hardship, exile, or martyrdom, that they had two biblical choices before them. First, leave the Roman Catholic Church and begin Protestant churches with pure worship in private homes or migrate to a nation or province where true liberty of worship for Protestants could be found, like in Geneva. Here's how Calvin refuted the Nicodemites that said, In our hearts we believe the truth, but we want to reform the Roman Catholic Church from within, so we'll go to Mass, we'll go through all the rites and rituals of Roman Catholicism, but even though we know they're wrong, in our hearts we know what's true. Here's what Calvin said. Here's how he refuted them. It is agreed by all that the Christian man must honor God, not only in his heart by spiritual affection, but also by outward witness. Since the Lord has redeemed our body and soul from death, he has bought both the one and the other in order to be master and governor of them. Since therefore both the man's body and his soul are concentrated and consecrated and dedicated to God, his glory must shine in both the one and the other. As St. Paul says, thus it is a mockery to say that it is enough for man to glorify God within his heart without concerning himself about external things for which God has no concern. For if the heart is good, it will produce it outward fruit. When we have the privilege of hearing the word of God preached purely or calling upon his name and enjoying the sacraments, this is ample recompense for all the trials, troubles, and hindrances that Satan may stir up against us. Can you imagine faith this guy? He's saying going to church and hearing the word of God and taking the sacraments is worth anything Satan's people do to you. The sum of the matter is that once we have come to know the living God as our Father and Jesus Christ as our Redeemer... We must dedicate body and soul to him who by his infinite goodness has adopted us as his children. And we must take care to do homage to this good savior for what cost him so dearly. We must likewise not only renounce every sort of unfaithfulness, but also distance ourselves from all superstitions, which are contrary both to the service of God and to the honor of his son, and which cannot be reconciled with the pure doctrine of the gospel and a true confession of faith. Question, if a person merely goes through the motions of idolatrous worship, 
with, with full knowledge of its falsehood, why would God mind? Calvin answers, there is a real kind of idolatry when one performs an external act that is contrary to the true service of God, even if it is done only for deception. Carlos Ayer goes on to explain Calvin's words. Those who insist on paying external honor to idolatrous services are harming themselves and denying God his glory, says Calvin, because the physical act of participation in false worship is objectively misdirected and evil regardless of the intentions of the worshiper. One is not to use one's body incorrectly, he adds, because external acts of reverence are objective signs of spiritual honor and as such carry with them the full intent of the reverential act. Bodily gestures cannot be separated from the honor they outwardly affect. Calvin will not admit a separation of internal belief and external confession. To him, faith entails an honest outward profession. Air continues. Calvin argues that although the service of God is primarily located in the heart, one still needs to make a public confession of faith through external actions. It is a metaphysical inversion that denies that there is any real concrete connection between the material and the spiritual. Human beings are spiritual, physical entities. God has created both natures and demands that worship be returned by the whole person. To deny this, argues Calvin, is to deny God's sovereignty over the physical world. That's the heresy of the Manichaeans, who deny that God is the creator of the total person. Idolatry must be shunned at all costs, even at the risk of one's life. For the first lesson one should learn in the school of Jesus Christ is the renunciation of self. 286. The duty of all Christians to despise idolatry. Calvin exhorted believers to constant commitment to true worship. Not to violent, lawless, iconoclastic crusades. However, he did believe that every Christian has the duty in the places God has assigned them to despise and oppose idolatry and worship. He did not believe in the use of unlawful violence, such as the peasants revolt in Germany. But he believed that it is right for all Christians to burn with the zeal with which Christ was animated when he vindicated the glory of the Father in the cleansing of the temple. Ayer says Calvin's message could not help but be disruptive to society. Calvin called upon Christians to burn with zeal for the pure worship of God. By calling on his followers to withdraw from the customs of their society and to abhor those practices with zeal, Calvin helped create an explosive situation. Calvin would admit no separation between private belief and public behavior. And this principle of confessional integrity went beyond mere passivity. It also called for an aggressive public rejection of the of many social norms that supported idolatry. To accept the Calvinistic creed, body and soul, was to become an agent of change. This quote by Carlos Ayer gives us insight into the explosive and transforming effect those who burn with zeal for the true 
worship of God can have on a society. Because Christian beliefs necessarily manifest themselves in public behavior. And because our commitment to Christ and his demand to separate ourselves from and oppose all in a culture that is opposed to God and his word, our confession of Christ's lordship will be more than individualistic. It will be comprehensive. It will be heard in the individuals and the institutions of human society. This means that all faithful Christians must see themselves as agents of social change, not in a violent or revolutionary way, but in a biblical and reformational manner. Calvin also believed, and we'll talk more about this later, that it was the duty of civil magistrates to prevent offenses to God by obeying and enforcing both tables of the law of the Ten Commandments. He believed that God put them in places of authority and power to be the guardians of pure worship and defenders of the Christian faith that they should govern in the name of Jesus. Isaiah 49, 23 says concerning the church, and kings will be your guardians and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Here's Calvin's words. We're going to read this later, so we'll uh, look at the second paragraph quickly. In 1544, Calvin gave similar advice to the king of Poland. In this letter, Calvin says that kings should not hesitate to wipe out idolatry in their land. Because as God set them on high for this purpose of enlightening their people. God further warns the Polish king that unless he calls his subjects away from the filthy dissipation of popery to the obedience of Christ, he shall incur serious blame before God. And he bases his attitude on the fact that the kings of Judah had the responsibility of removing idolatry from the land. Next page, central paragraph. This view of Calvin is politically incorrect in 21st century America. The majority of Christians having bought into the pluralistic and humanistic view of liberty for all religions would completely disagree with him. And yet he bases his view on the righteous practice of the kings of the Old Testament Hebrew Republic insofar as God created it to be a model for the nations. Modern and postmodern Christians do not agree with Calvin because they do not agree with his view of the Old Testament. However, it is in the whole Bible, in both Testaments, that God has revealed his moral law for individuals, families, churches, and nations. The agenda of Calvin in his struggle for the purity of worship against the Nicodemites. This is largely a paraphrase of a great book I recommend to you called War Against Idols. Calvin's opposition to Nicodemitism grew out of his struggle for the survival of the Reformation and of Reformed churches in France. This, by the way, is radical. His opposition was based on theological principles, but it was anything but an irrelevant academic dispute. It was an attempt to salvage the Reformed cause from confusion and to mold it into a vibrant faith distinct from Roman Catholicism. The Nicodemite Compromise was repugnant to Calvin, not only because it was a compromise with idolatry, but also because it denied the need for a pure and true church in France, wholly dedicated to Reformation principles. He knew that Nicodemitism could easily paralyze the Reformed attempt at social reform and the establishment of Reformed institutions like churches and schools and publishing houses. 
Therefore, he saw Nicodemitism as a serious threat to the Reformation because it sought a reconciliation between the corruption of Rome's idolatrous worship and the purity of the gospel of grace taught by the Reformers. So then Calvin saw the doctrinal and liturgical corruption of the Roman Catholic Church as an immense evil that had to be shunned and, when possible, eradicated. Calvin not only resisted any kind of compromise or negotiation in his war against idols, he also bravely asserted the necessity of separation from the Roman Catholic Church, and he laid a solid biblical base for the establishment of Reformed churches throughout France and Europe. In opposing any compromise with the idolatry of Rome, Calvin drew a blueprint for social, political, and ecclesiastical change and conflict. Hence, the implications of Calvin's position were obviously disruptive to church, state, and society. People had a choice, between, had to make a choice between Rome and the gospel of the Reformers. Either one belonged to the true church of God, untainted by idolatry, or one belonged to the unreformed church, the false church of the Pope. To call for such a choice in 16th century Europe was to call for revolution. In an age when religion and nationality were closely intertwined, any religiousism could not help but also be political. The war in France in the 16th century was between the Roman Catholic government and the Calvinistic French people. Calvin insisted that there could be no compromise with the faith of the king. With the faith the king was trying to force by law upon the people of France. This war, which had been brewing in the 1540s and 50s, finally erupted in 1562, which was largely the result of Calvin's refusal to compromise with the Nicodemites. Similar conclu conclusions can be drawn about Calvinist-inspired strife in England, Scotland, and the Netherlands during the second half of the 16th century. Although Calvin's primary goal was the necessity of true and uncorrupted worship in the visible church, based on biblical and theological principles, the application of these principles in 16th century society necessarily involved a very concrete kind of political challenge. By calling for separation and exile and the creation of a purified church, Calvin was striking deep at the heart of the body politic. He was, in fact, calling into question the Christian's national identity and sense of allegiance. In his battle against Nicodemitism, Calvin had no hidden agenda, although he was motivated by a clear vision of the Reformation and Christianization of the social and political order. His theology was far from speculative. In fact, in Calvin's Christian vision, it is impossible to separate political motivations from theological reasons. They were in no way mutually exclusive. His theology informed his politics. This comprehensive worldview encouraged the development of more clearly defined political ambitions among his followers, like the author of Vindicii Contra Tyrannus. By attacking Nicodemitism and ruling out compromise, Calvin developed the basis and framework not only for purity of worship, but also for a politics of purity based on the word of God, much as English Puritanism sought to do. He saw that Christians were exempt from obeying civil laws 
that required disobedience to God, that demanded pollution through idolatrous behavior. This helped many to take their first step away from total allegiance to their rulers and also made it easier for others to develop a more active ideology of resistance against idolatry and the political order that supported it, like John Knox. It could also be said that the British settlement of North America, America's War of Independence in 1776, and the U.S. Constitution all have their roots in Calvin's call for the purity of worship. The purity of worship is at the heart of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is most clearly defined in Reformed terms, for the Reformed faith is biblical Christianity in its purest human expression. Purity of worship is impossible to maintain apart from Reformed and Calvinistic theological principles and presuppositions. Striving for the purity of the church, worship, and society without compromise demands striving to end idolatrous worship and all the institutions and customs of a society that support them. Therefore, those who are striving for the purity of worship and the restoration of the Reformed faith will be disruptive agents of social change. And in reaction to these Christians, those who defiantly cling to their idolatrous worship and idolatrous culture will use political and ecclesiastical power to silence those who know that the state is not God. This means that until we convert the American culture to comprehensive purity, some of us will be burned at the stake, whatever that will mean in the 21st century.